We have been journeying through the book of Genesis, and uh, we're going to continue that journey today. And this is a graph. If, if you're new to Safe Haven, what we do by nature is we just go straight through books of the Bible, straight through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, and let the text speak to us. Um, and, and Genesis has been powerful. It's been really, really, really good. And, and God's been gracious to us as we've journeyed through it. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to journey through this today in a little bit different way than we have journeyed through uh, most of it. In the this, I'm just going to walk through this moment that we're in. If, if you have been journeying with us, or if you haven't, um, we've tracked all the way through these families, and we've, we've hit this guy named Isaac. And, and so this is the book of Genesis, how it's broken down. It's not a complicated book. Four major events, four major people. We're on the second of those four major people. Um, Isaac, um, the son of Abraham. So you've got Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And this is the lineage um, that, that all Christianity and Judaism actually stems from. And so we've hit Isaac and we're kind of learning from his life. If we've learned anything through the book of Genesis, it is this, that God can use absolutely jacked up, messed up families. Um, that's kind of what we've learned, and today we'll see that maybe a little more. So with that said, we've been studying. Here is this guy named Isaac. Um, he's now in our journey, this old, seasoned uh, veteran. We've walked with him through his life, all the way from a coward to somebody who became very confident. And now, later in life, he's just become kind of calloused. And so we're looking at this, this gentleman. He's, he's gone through a famine. There was a famine in the land, and if you remember, his... His idea to, um, to help God out through this famine was to go to Egypt. God prevented that. He said, I don't want you to go to Egypt. And, and then um, he, he lands in this land called Gerar, and he tries to give his wife away. Right? So he's, he's messing things up left and right. He's trying to go somewhere God said don't go. He's trying to do things that no sane human would do. He tries to give his wife away. Uh, God gives the king of that land, Abimelech, eyes to see what's going on. And so you've got this unmoral, unrighteous, pagan king doing the will of God when the believer who is supposed to be righteous is trying to war against the will of God. It is just this crazy passage of Scripture that not a lot of people talk about. Meaning this, that sometimes immoral, unrighteous people end up doing righteous things when the righteous people, or so proclaimed to be, end up trying to track the wrong way. It's just this conundrum of a passage, but nonetheless, God in the end, even in his unfaithfulness, blesses Isaac. <laughs> That's the astounding thing of this, this whole passage. So it's just a spinning compass whirlwind of a family. If we could see life as we're to walk around with a compass, and, and sometimes I think that would be easier, right? If God would just go here, I'm thinking about Pirates of the Caribbean now, uh, maybe timely with, with Johnny Depp and all of that. Any other Pirates of the Caribbean fans? Okay. Yes! All right. Maybe they'll get him back for the last... Okay, hurrah. We don't have time to talk about that. Sorry, I'll dive deep off into that. All right. Nonetheless, there's this, this moment where they're following this compass, and the whole thing is this compass sometimes spins incredibly wildly, and sometimes it points in just a direction. Wouldn't it be easier if God would just go, here's a compass, walk wherever it points? That seems like it would be a lot easier, Right? This family is anything but a linear pointing compass. They are just wildly spin all over the place. That's what we've learned from this text. And so the father, the father's been a roller coaster. The wife 
is a relentless, conniving helicopter mom for one child, not both, but just one child. You've got one son who could care less about the things of the Lord. He marries Canaanite women. He makes life bitter for his mom and dad. Then you've got another son who does care things about things of the Lord, but is willing to do anything at any cost to steal this blessing from his brother. It's just a cluster of a family. Can anybody identify with that? All right. My family can certainly identify with this. So let's walk through this passage together that we find ourselves in. Maybe that's just a little bit of recap. Here's the context of Genesis chapter 26, where we land today in our exegetical study of Genesis. May the word of the Lord speak to us beyond the voice of a man. The context, Genesis chapter 27, 1 through 4. Isaac is now old. His days are numbered, and he knows this. And so he calls the oldest child. And he calls the oldest child, and he says, Hey, I want you to go get a meal. Go gather. Remember, Esau, the oldest, is a hunter-gatherer. He says, Go gather a meal. And so he says, I want you to, to bring this back. There's a hint of gluttony already in Genesis chapter uh, 24, 25, I believe, where it says this, that Isaac loved his oldest son Esau, and he loved him because, specifically in verse 28, because he could eat of the game that he provided. So you've got kind of this hint of this man who just craves meat, and his oldest son is able to get that, so he loves him more than he loves his youngest son. This is where we find ourselves. And... He's ready to call him together to have this meal in his old age because he wants to give him the blessing. Now remember, there was a birthright and there was a blessing. The birthright has already been given away. Y'all should remember this. The oldest gave that birthright and the inheritance away to his brother so that he also could just eat of some meat. And so in this moment, there's still the blessing. The blessing is the more spiritual component. I guess we could say it something like this. The birthright was paper, maybe ink and pen. This is what's going to happen with my inheritance. The blessing is, and God did this through these days, there was a very real spiritual blessing that the father would place on the child, and God would use this however he used it to accomplish his purposes. It was a very mystical but nonetheless very real thing. So the birthright's already been given away, but the blessing's to come. Now here's the deal. The prophecy that the Lord gave was this. The older shall do what? Serve the younger. That messed everything in the system up. Usually, the younger serve the older. But God has said, in my plan for this crazy family, here's what's going to happen. The older will serve the younger. This is a blatant attempt right here by the Father to usurp God's will and accomplish what He wants to accomplish. As a matter of fact, the passage says this. It says this in verse 4, that he wants to give Esau the blessing from his own soul. In other words, he knows what God said. He knows that God says the older will serve the younger. But as a father from his own soul, he goes, I don't want that. I don't want that. I want my oldest to get what is due him. He's trying to circumvent. This is the context of the passage we find ourselves in. The counter move. Counter move. All these are going to have C's. You know it's going to be a good day when all the points have the same letter. It's like spirit-driven or OCD-driven. We'll go with spirit-driven, but it's probably the latter. The context, now let's move to the counter move, verse 5 through 10. The mom, the helicopter mom, the conniving mom, she overhears this. And and you may think that 
that your walls are thin in your house, but imagine the walls of a tent, right? So she overhears this. So, so maybe it's the walls or maybe it's just the fact that Isaac is a little bit older. And, you know, sometimes when you get a little bit older, your volume control gets a little lost, right? And so maybe Isaac just is screaming these things. <laughs> maybe he's like, here's what's going to happen. But nonetheless, the counter move is this, is the mom overhears this and she tells the youngest, hey, 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 your dad is wanting to give this blessing away. Let's circumvent him. So she says to the younger, you go steal some goats from the flock, bring them back in, I'll prepare it. I know the way to your dad's heart. And she's, she says this, that we're going to steal this blessing basically at any cost. In verse 8, she says, obey my voice. Very cool passage there. Underline things in your Bible, underline that. In other words, I don't care what God said. Here's what I want, and you, youngest, you obey my voice because here's what I want as a mom. Again, compass spinning wildly as a family. Even if you have to silence God's commands, you do what I say do, is what this mom and wife is saying. So she's ready to steal a blessing at any cost. And this brings up the old question that goes around a lot of times, something like this. At what point do I disobey my parents? At what point do I disobey my boss? At what point do I disobey those that I'm under the lordship of? At what point do I disobey this? And here's the answer to that question. The moment that they contradict the Lord's commands. That's just as clear as it gets. The Lord had commanded one thing. The mom is saying another thing. At this moment, Jacob should have been like, no, 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 no. This is not what the Lord has said. And so this is what happens. Now, I want to be clear about that. (laughs) Because if your boss tells you that he needs you to work extra hours, that is not triumphing the Lord's commands. If the boss says, I just need you to work harder, then she is not triumphing the Lord's commands But if the boss says, I need you to be fraudulent, lie, deceit, whatever, that is trying to go against the Lord's commands. That's the moment that we as believers are to indeed disobey. Nonetheless, she's a black widow wife. I mean, she is as black widow as they come. She's going to betray her husband. She's going to betray the firstborn. She's going to divide the family. She's going to ultimately betray the Lord. We've got the context. We've got the counter move by the mom slash wife. And then we've got the concern, verses 11 through 17. Jacob's concern is this. Jacob is completely aware of the differences between him and his brother. His brother is a big, hairy guy, just a manly man. Jacob is a mama's boy uh, watching TLC and Hallmark movies. He knows the differences between the two. And in this moment, he's got a check mark in his soul. Side note. When we have a check mark, that's usually a good moment to stop and ask why do we have a check mark in our soul rather than just press on. But nonetheless, what we see here in this passage is the difference between guilt and conviction. If you've ever wondered the difference between, okay, what is the difference between just guilt and honest biblical conviction? And I think you can see that in this passage. Here's the difference the difference is Jacob has a check mark. A guilt, a worry, but his worry is, what if I get caught? His worry is the consequences. Now, why do I bring that? Here's why I say that. Because regret and guilt is often found in our kids when they confess that they have offended you because they got caught. 
here was the rule, I got caught, and that's kind of that regret and guilt, right? Or let's bring it to us, me and, and my family. Sometimes I'm regretting things or guilty of things because I've offended Julie Beth. And, and there was maybe something that, I, that I've, I've, I've done that we have an unstated rule or a real rule or whatever it is, and I've, I've got regret or guilt. All of that is just regret and guilt because I'm, I'm worried that I've offended just mainly that other person because I broke that rule, right? Here's conviction. Conviction is when we're worried that we've offended not the other person, but who? God's holiness. God's standard. God's righteousness. And in this moment, Jacob is not worried about God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's standard, what God God wants. He doesn't care about that at all. All he's worried about is, I'm worried that my dad's going to catch me and I'm going to get in trouble. That's the difference maybe between worry and conviction, if you've ever thought through that. God's holiness is at stake. What are we guilty of? What are we regretting? Are we regretting that we just kind of got caught? Or are we regretting that that God's been offended in his righteousness? This is this passage nonetheless. Let's keep going. So Jacob is concerned, and the mom goes (laughs) completely silence of the lambs in this moment. Um, I can't think of a more fitting thing. Some of you have never seen this movie, and that's to your good. Don't go watch it. But some of us have and are forever scarred. It puts the lotion in the basket. It rubs the lotion on the skin or it gets the hose again, right? This mom goes completely silence of the lambs, and that is not just me being goofy. It really does happen. She's going to fatten up the husband because she knows that's the way to his stomach. She puts a literal skin suit on her son. The son gets a skin suit. So she takes the animals, carves them up because Esau is hairy, puts skin on him. Side note, if any of you guys dress up <laughs> as an um, a, a, a imposter Esau for uh, Halloween, I will give you all the nerd ropes. You get all of them. You come to my house. But this is a, this is a ridiculous moment if you track this in your brain. She puts a skin suit on her son, um, and then she begins to cannibalize the whole family. By this, she's going to put Esau's clothes on her youngest. Um, he's dead to me anyway. All I care about is not my husband, not my other son, but just my youngest. And then he gets this blessing, and I'll do whatever it takes. It is a warped family. Again, I'm trying to point this out to you. This is this family. Let's not read this passage and go, "Boy, we'd be a good family if we could be like Abraham." I mean, we sing the song about Father Abraham, right? But as Tyler pointed out, there's just some songs that we don't put all the details. We don't sing, Father Abraham had many sons. One was Isaac and his family was twisted. The mom put a skin suit on the youngest son, tried to trick the dad. Hey, hey, like this, we don't, it is a jacked up family, okay? But nonetheless, this is what happens. Jacob is concerned. Then we've got the climax. Climax, verse 18 through 29. Jacob does indeed come dressed up in this suit of hair, smelling like Esau's clothes, to steal this blessing. He comes walking into his father with a meal, um, like the real Esau. He, he is a, I guess, a, a, he's a complete scratch-and-sniff replica. The father has a failing eyesight, so how are we going to dupe him? And then there's a series of three lies that he gives. How on earth could God use someone this conniving is what should be going through our brains? Series of three lies. Number one, he lies about his identity. Who are you? I'm Esau. Or, 
Or as in my picture brain, as we've been going through this, it would sound more like, well, I'm Esau. You know, he's, he's, he's tender. He's kind. He's, so he says, I'm Esau. So he lies about his identity. And he says, well, how did you, you get this meal so fast? And then he lies about God. He brings God into the picture. And he says, um, God provided me this meat very quickly. How twisted is that? And then the father, Isaac, going, something about this still doesn't seem right. Are you sure that you are my son Esau? And he lies again and he says, yes, I am Esau. Now here in this moment, we've got this series of three lies, but then one heinously grotesque action. And this action happens in verse 27, where he leans in and betrays his father with a kiss. The most vile of anything that anybody could ever do to betray with a kiss. What's meant to be an affection, a term of endearment, he betrays his father with this kiss, should scream us to the whole action of Judas, and bring us to that moment in our minds. This is the climax, and then the blessing is indeed given. I'll say at this point, given. And a lot of you at this point may want to say, Troy, that's not given. Brother, that's stolen. Hang on just a minute. Nonetheless, it's given. Here's the blessing that's given. Remember, Jacob has already stolen the birthright. Now he is indeed stealing the blessing. And the father says this, spiritually and mystically, and however this worked back in the day. You will receive the dew of heaven. In other words, even in drought, the Lord will pour out water for you. He does as he lives the rest of his life. He says, the Lord will give you the fatness of the earth. The Lord will pour out from the land fruits and grains and nuts and wine. And he does for the rest of his life. And then he says this of Jacob, thinking it's Esau. The Lord will give you a kingly reign. He says, other nations will bow to you as Abimelech did to Abraham and also to his father Isaac. And then he finally says, And the Lord will bless you by giving you a family reign. Your brothers and all your servants in your clan will bow to you as the leader. So we've gone from context to counter move to concern to climax, and now the complete collapse. This is the backside of the climax. This is where it all begins to unravel now for Esau. Esau shows up, verses 30 through 40. Obedient Esau shows up. Let's not forget this. Obedient Esau shows up and has done exactly as the father has asked, and this tragic deception is unveiled. The father says this, what has happened? And Esau says, well, I'm here. I'm here with your food. And Isaac goes, no, no, no. What, who are you? And he, realizing what's happened in this moment, he says, ah, Jacob has done this. And he weeps bitterly. He begins to shake violently. Esau is enraged that his brother has come in and done this. And he says this, fascinating passage. The father, Isaac, says this, Jacob has done this, and rightly is he named. You remember Jacob's name? You remember what happened when Jacob was coming out, the twin? He grabbed what of his brother? Grabbed the heel. He's always from the womb trying to pull his brother back. And so Isaac names him Jacob, the heel grabber, the one who pulls from the heel. And in this moment, he says, ha ha, ultimately it has now come true. Rightly is he named the one who takes from the heel. Like a snake who jumps out from behind 
a log and strikes the heel. Jacob has done this. He's fulfilled who he is in this moment. And Isaac feels a complete body shock. I can't think of another word. Now, why did he feel a body shock? He doesn't feel a body shock as you might be thinking. You might think, okay, well, he feels a body shock because his youngest son has just duped the oldest. He's just stolen. I don't think that's why he feels the body shock. I think that hurts him. I think that he's, he's a little miffed that this has happened in his family. But as Monty Python would say, that, my friends, was just a flesh wound. It was a flesh wound. The body shock and what rocked him with the core was God had indeed outsmarted him, outsmarted his whole agenda to go against God's will. And in this moment, Isaac's selfish will to make his son the leader was rocked by God's sovereign will to make the younger son the leader. And in this moment... Isaac goes, everything that I've tried, the Lord has rocked. And boom, he falls defeated at the feet of the Lord's will. It's a crazy passage. It's a powerful passage. Again, the prophecy given was this, the older will serve the younger. Not the older might serve the younger. God didn't say my sovereign will is maybe the older will do something to accomplish not serving the younger. No, no, he said, this is what will happen. And in this moment, God's sovereignty triumphs over Isaac's personal will. Church, you got to get that. You got to get that. We will never be a church that takes Scripture... And lowers God's sovereignty to our palatability. You gotta hear that. This is what happens in this text. And this, I'm gonna say three things about this God's sovereignty triumphing, and maybe a word that's easier to use is this permission. What we're talking about is how does God's sovereignty work in light of our permission to do real things? Like, how do those two go together? The answer to that is concurrence. We believe in concurrence at Safe Haven Church. God is sovereign. We have permission. But how do those two go in hand in hand? Here we see them colliding. As Americans, we have a real hard problem with God's sovereignty, if we're just honest. As Americans, we don't like this. We say things like this, and it feeds into the church. No one can take away my freedom, my free will. Like, nobody can do that. We don't... We don't like that. I have a vote in this. I have a say in this. I get to choose. I get to... And it's pretty exclusive to Americans in the way that we fight for this. I would argue freedom a lot of times in Americans and or American churches is actually an idol. I, it's me. It's all that I want, everything that I want. And when we get to these moments where we go, I get to choose my way. This is Isaac, right? I get to choose my way and God going, oh, buddy... No, you don't. Not this time. We don't like that. Number one, because we're Americans. But number two, I want to say this about this. This is just biblical. This is the Bible. And in this moment, 
God does give us permission to make very real choices that have very real consequences. But praise the Lord, in His sovereignty, He maintains His providential decree at His disposal whenever He wants to institute it. Why? Because He's God. That's the answer. Because He's God. And in this moment, this is good. This is a great thing. He says, this is what I want. This is what's going to happen. No matter what you try to do in your permission, I'm going to make this happen. And this is of great peace. This is of great worship. This is of great grace. If you can wrap your minds around the doctrines of grace. And we see it unfold right here. My question is this. Have you ever felt God's fatal blow to your idols? I want this. I'll do whatever it takes to get this. No matter what God says, I'm going to do this. And then God just gives you a body shock right to the sternum and it collapses you. In that moment, you're primed to respond in one of two ways. Number one, you'll go fight for your own freedom. And go, I don't care what you did, God. I'm going to make this happen. And you'll worship yourself. Or number two, in that moment, you're primed for a great movement of grace. Where you collapse, you bend the knee, and you go, God, thank you for revealing my selfishness and my desire to overcome and triumph over what you said was going to happen. Lord, I bend the knee, I repent. Let's walk together afresh and anew. You're primed for grace. And according to God's word, in that moment, if you respond in obedience, if you take that spinning compass... And the Lord all of a sudden in that moment goes, boom, this is what I'm doing. You begin to walk in it. Here's the beauty of grace as the father looks down and goes, son, daughter, let's walk afresh and anew. Let's accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. And so in this moment, there's this body rock. God has said, do this. He said, no, I'm going to ignore you. God gives a bloody body blow and he wins. And in this moment, it's just much easier to walk with the Lord in moments like this, continued faith than to war against Him. But nonetheless, we all like to touch the hot eye for ourselves, don't we? We read passages like this and we're like, yeah, that makes so much sense. If the Lord does something, I should, I should walk in step with His will. And just like our kids, all, all three of our kids, and I'm sure everybody in here has done this, right? You turn the eye on and the kids want to touch it. And you're like, no, that will burn your hand. And they go, hot, hot, yes, hot, hot, hot. And then, you, sure enough, you walk away and what do they do? Psst. And then it's not hot anymore, right? It's a complete collapse. We're all prone to do that. Why would we do that? The Lord has given us this. And so in this moment, we see God's sovereignty. Here's, here's the grace. The grace is when we're disobedient, there is grace. But if we're not careful, we'll walk with a strong limp if the Lord has to give us the body shock. Nonetheless, Isaac is a man of his word. Even in evil, God has won and his will is going to be accomplished. And Esau receives the anti-blessing. So I hesitate to call it a curse again for now, but the anti-blessing is given. Here's the anti-blessing. Your brother will lord over you now from a national standpoint. He'll be your king. Anti-blessing number two. Your brother will lord over you as the head of the family clan. Number three. The provisions of the earth, the dewness, uh, the dew and the fatness will now be your brothers. 
And then war and strife are for you and for your offspring to possess. What a cluster. So we've walked through the context, the counter move, the concern, the climax, the collapse, and now the consequences and or the conclusion. Verse, chapter 27, verses 41 through chapter 28, 1 through 9. Here's the consequences. Here's the fallout. Big brother now hates little brother. Not that they didn't hate each other before, but now because of this spinning compass of a family, they really hate each other. As a matter of fact, that's what the passage says, right? So big brother now hates little brother. He conspires to kill him. And he must have told somebody because mom overhears this. Mom gets word of it. She's always scheming. So Rebecca then decides to send Jacob, the youngest, to old Uncle Laban. I told you all several weeks ago, remember Laban. He's about to come up big time in the next chapters. We're going to send you off to Uncle Laban. That will protect you in hopes that Esau forgets. Listen, he ain't going to forget this. You know, it's the old statement, um, you know, I, I love you, but it's really hard to forget. I don't know if we can ever truly forget many things at all, much less in a situation like this. She then comes up with an even better plan. I'm not going to send you off, but I'm going to convince your dad to let you go hang out down there to get a wife. Because after all, these Hittite women and these Canaanite women around here, they are just incredibly wicked people. Like, all of a sudden, she's got a moral compass. I've done all this to my family, but, buddy, I want you to go marry one of these moral women. Like, it's just so warped. And so, um, Isaac does indeed send Jacob away to Laban. And, yes, he gives him the blessing of Abraham all the way back to where we began this whole journey. The Abrahamic covenant. He gives it to him. So Isaac goes off and does this. Guess what O Ishmael does? He can't stand this. And so Ishmael, I mean Esau, goes to Ishmael, the brother. You remember this. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Ishmael. This would make a great Marvel movie. I think it would be fantastic. And he goes to Ishmael, who is the leader of the Muslims to this day. It all tracks back to Ishmael. He goes to Ishmael and says, listen, I will get a wife from these people. And thus, not only is the spinning compass for his family spinning, but it sends a whole ripple, body shock ripple into the world as we know it. This is how big moments are. And so to say the least, I guess I'll wrap it up by saying, church... This family ain't the Cleavers. (laughs) They are not the Jetsons. They are certainly not the Andy Griffith show. The moral compass of this family is spinning off of the charts. So what possibly could we take away from this? What could you you take away from this family? Like After we've been going through Genesis, nobody's ever going to sing Father Abraham anymore. We've already axed that one out of your memory. But what could you possibly take from this? What is the point? What is the authorial intent of this passage? I don't know all of it, but maybe seven things that I think are gloriously gracious truths from this. Troy, there's really grace in this. Oh my gosh. I think there's incredible grace in this. Let's look at it together. Maybe seven takeaways from this moment in history. One is this there are no heroes in this story, only sinners. Everybody in this story 
in the Bible, these characters, not characters but real people, they're only sinners. And the beauty of that is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God can use anyone for His glory. What a gracious truth. Why do I say that? Let's recap. Isaac had an idol and it was his son Esau. Rebekah had an idol and it was the other son Jacob. Esau had an idol and it was his hunting and fishing. Jacob had an idol and it was this blessing. He wanted it at all costs. And Troy has more idols than you could ever dream of. It's as John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories, constantly churning out more and more idols for us to worship. And the beauty of this is that God can still use people just like that. So if you walked in this room going, I'm a mess and I don't even know why I'm here, welcome home to a bunch of messes who are wondering how could God ever use us. This is the glorious truth out of this moment. And the first step towards righteousness is just owning our own sinfulness. It's not this blame shifting. We can't be used if it's constantly blame shifting. So it also teaches us, let's don't blame shift. Here's the deal. It wasn't that seductive person's fault that you did that. It wasn't the government's fault that you chose to do this. It wasn't the computer's fault that you clicked on that. It wasn't your boss's fault that you blah. It wasn't your parents' faults. It wasn't your friends' faults. It wasn't your children's faults. It was your fault. It was your desires. It was your actions. And the healthy posture of a believer is to admit that, own it, and that's where repentance begins. I'm a sinner. And I think this passage leads us to that. There are no heroes in this story. All sinners. Number two, what's a beautiful thing? With that first takeaway in mind, I'm going to just simply quote Kent Hughes. What a fantastic reminder out of this passage. God's invincible determination to keep His word despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of His people is something of immense beauty and grandeur. God uses Jacob the rest of his life even out of this crazy moment. Which reminds us of this. God will see fit that His people are called. God will see fit that His people are known. God will see to it that His people are destined. God will see to it that His people are conformed. God will see to it that His people are saved. God will see to it that His people are glorified. God will see fit that His people, though as the song says, are prone to wonder, to draw them into His grace. That's the hope of the gospel. Troy, that sounds all fun and it sounds like great points, but it's not just a point. This is exactly what Paul says clearly in Romans chapter 8 where he says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? If you are God's covenant child, it's not about what about what you do or don't do. 
It's about what God has done for you, in you, and through you for his glory. And if you're like me who knows you're prone to wonder and knows all the sin in your life, that is of incredible hope. Number three, in the grand scheme of God's secret will and permissive will, we're just a walk indeed with a spirit-led compass. Your life is no different than anybody else's. Your struggles are no different than anybody else's. Your kids are no different than anybody else's. Your problems are no different than anybody else's. And there's a bunch of people in this room going, Oh, you don't know my kids. (laughs) I don't. But I know this about them. They're crazy. You know how I know that? Because all of them are. They're all crazy except for Macy Lane. Um, But that's not to show favorites. I promise that I'm not Jacob. You know, whatever. No, no, she's crazy too. They're all crazy. We all have these issues. We all have this struggle. Our compass is all spinning out of control. And if this reminds us of anything, it's yes, that sometimes life makes us dizzy. Sometimes life makes us anxious. And sometimes life makes us excited. But sometimes the stars align when we think on the Lord. And it causes us to worship. When we walk in step with the Spirit, even in the midst of our craziness. The question is not, how crazy is your life? The question is, are you asking the Spirit to step in and tell you what is the next step in the midst of your crazy life? That's the key. That's what this passage calls us to. I don't want to belabor it too long. I won't belabor it long at all. I'll just simply say this. If any of these nut jobs in this story, Isaac... Rebecca, Jacob, Esau. If any of them would have just hit the pause button and said, Hey, hold on a second. What does the Spirit want us to do in this next step? We probably avoid all of this. What would it look like in your family in the midst of chaos? The spinning compass just to go, Hey, stop screaming or throwing things. Pause button. What does the Lord want us to do next? Not ten years from now, not five years from now, not the bank account in three months. What about, what's the next step? It's just as simple as that. So, we're in indeed to walk. Let's keep going real fast. Number four, I think this passage also reminds us that it is erroneous to believe that sinful acts are acceptable if it aids the righteous work of God. Either we stand for absolute truth, absolute purity, absolute ethic, or we dismantle the foundation of the inerrancy of Scripture in and of itself. Troy, what do you mean by all that? I think a lot of times we go, and I'll bring it to, this is where, this is where everybody will get like, like, oh gosh, is he going to talk about that? If I just burn down the abortion clinic, that will help God accomplish His righteous purposes. No. No. We can never do something sinful to help God accomplish His righteous acts. And I think that this passage screams of this. You got all kind of people trying to accomplish all kind of things to help God accomplish His purposes. You got lying, cheating, conniving, stealing, all kind of things to help God accomplish the fact that the older shall serve the younger. When God is perfectly capable of accomplishing all that He has said He will accomplish. 
And so it's erroneous for us to believe that sinful acts are acceptable. Rebecca, again, to Jacob, God can't accomplish this, so let's lie, let's cheat, let's manipulate, let's steal, blah, 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 blah. And so saying that one can sin for a righteous reason devalues all of the scriptural commands and makes you the arbiter of truth. God says, don't lie, but I'm going to, in this situation, to accomplish this. No. God says, don't steal, but I'm going to do this. (laughs) But she asked me if she looked good in that outfit that I don't think looked good in, so I'll just flubber the truth to whatever. No, these are all silly, but my point is simply this. If we're going to be people of the Word who truly believe the Word of God is inerrant in all things, then if lying is what brings peace, then take the war and trust that God is righteous. If stealing is what brings you comfort, then take the struggle and just trust God in the struggle. If gluttony is what brings you rest and calm, then take the sleeplessness and trust God. We are to pursue righteousness. God is to accomplish His will. So I think we can see that in this passage. Let's keep going. And then simultaneously, I think a point out of this, God will accomplish His righteous works even despite our sinful acts of stupidity. And I know right now you're like, Troy, this church feels like it is a walking pendulum. It is. We will never deny one side of the pendulum or the other. We have real permission to make real choices that have real consequences. Absolutely. God has sovereign control over what He wants to accomplish. And those two things work simultaneously. And so even in the midst of our stupid decisions, (laughs) praise the Lord that He, in His sovereignty, can take lemons and make lemonade. I think we see that in this passage. We've got an old man who's rejected God's will. We've got a young man and a twisted mom who's engaged in all kinds of evil to get what they want. And through all of this church family, God's will is still accomplished. Number six, you'll drive yourself crazy if you try to reconcile past historic moments with whys and what ifs. That's definitely in this passage. You will drive yourself crazy If you live your life going, well, why this? Or what if I would have done this? That is definitely in this passage. This sounds like this, right? Well, what if Esau, in the beginning, wouldn't have sold his birthright? Or this. Well, why would God allow that to happen? Or this. What if Jacob would have not listened to his mom? And though you may have fun in your small groups talking about that, you'll never come up with the answer. You know why? Because it didn't happen, right? And the whys and what ifs will drive us crazy in life if we're not careful. When we feel the shaking collapse of our idols, we just need to walk in grace and let the past be the past and move on to the future. It's a beautiful thing. Whys and whats would be acceptable if we were holy. Like then we could approach a holy God and go, why and what? But we're not, and we can't. The mark of an unbeliever is this. I see what you've done, God, and I don't care. 
I will take the past, I will redefine it, and I will fight for what I want. The mark of a believer is, I see what you've done, God. And I'm going to let the past be the past. I'm not going to be terrorized by the whys and the whatnots. I repent. Help me to trust you today. That's where this passage leads us. And then number seven, as we conclude. God cannot and will not be anything but faithful to his covenant children. Just as you are, warts and all. This passage screams at that. God is faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, and even old Esau. As a matter of fact, when we preach through the book of Hebrews, you'll oddly see them again, but that will be in year 2037. So, as the band comes back up, I want to walk off letting the word of God ring in our ears one more time. I think a great passage that encompasses all of this is 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It's a fascinating passage. Screams of God's faithfulness in the same way that I think all of Genesis 27 and 28 is screamed. Moral compass spinning wildly out of control. Can God still be faithful in the midst of that is the question. 2 Timothy 2 says this, and there's some natural things to it. And then one stunning thing. If we've died with Christ, naturally, we'll live with Him, right? If we endure with Christ, then naturally we'll reign with Him. If we deny Him, then naturally He'll deny us. That's the essence of salvation. Now watch this crazy ending to this passage. But if we are faithless, stunning grace, He remains faithful, just as you are. For he cannot deny himself. If you are a believer in this room, trusting and not denying in the finished work of Christ to be your substitutionary righteousness, the scandal of the gospel is even when you are faithless, He is what? Faithful. The Word of God for the people of God. Scandalous. Let's pray together. God, what a crazy passage. God, I pray today has not been about topics or feel-goodism or emotionalism or lights and smoke or funny stories. Or Just pray today that we've wrestled with your text. That we've let your word be the word. That your word has done what it's done. That it's hopped around this room at different times. Sometimes people napping and then sometimes the text just wrestling with them or maybe somebody grabbing a piece of the text and running it with it for the past 35 minutes-ish. God, I just pray that your text is 
God, you've taken people's compasses that are spinning wildly, and if nothing else, you've pointed them in one direction by the guidance of your Spirit. God, as we've wrestled through all of this, of of people prone to wonder, but yet people who are desperately wrestling to believe and to have faith and to trust, and we're wrestling with obedience and sovereignty and our sin and your forgiveness and your... I know in this room there are people who are wrestling with works versus grace and am I doing enough versus did Christ didn't do enough and there's just all kind of things going on in this room. I got to get it, but would you by your grace cause us to look at the cross become less of us, more of you and to see how scandalous your faithfulness can be to those who are believing So God, I don't want to miss the point. And if there's an unbeliever in this room, would you overcome their resistance? If there's an unbeliever, God, would you cause them to believe? Would you call them to repent of their sin, to trust in you, to surrender, to believe on you as Lord, to commit to you not only as Savior, but also Lord, to to commit to obedience and to live out the Scriptures. And God, save unbelievers, please, God, today. For believers... Who though their life sometimes looks like a real freak show. God, would you call them to surrender and repentance? God, would you, as they do, be faithful to your scripture. To be faithful even when they are faithless. Remind them of the scandalous work of the cross. Warts and all. God, remind us that this passage was not meant for us to scream how unfair that God let Esau be cursed. That we'll be stunned that God would allow Jacob to be blessed. And us as well. And Lord, we need more of that. More of you, less of us. Thank you for redeeming lost, wayward sinners, not perfect, righteous workers because of the cross.